2: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
3: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and
2: at Bloomberg.com podcast. Let's break down this Disney news. We do that with... Uh, Shanali Bastik, She covers all things Wall Street. She joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Geetha Ranganathan, she is the Senior Media Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Geetha, I want to start with you. What do you think is kind of job one on Bob Iger's to-do list uh, in his return to the CEO spot?
4: Yeah, uh, thanks. Thanks, Paul, for having me. So I think job number one is kind of really re-examining, scrutinizing the streaming strategy. Obviously, they've done really, really well when it comes to subscriber numbers, but that is not the focus anymore. It's all about economics. It's all about profitability. Uh, And we know they've had some huge losses in the streaming department. And It looks like they're going to lose another $3 billion this year. Um so unless uh, you know, Bob Iger goes back to the drawing board, uh sees exactly what needs to be trimmed, whether it's marketing expenses, whether it's a whole real realignment of the content strategy, I think that is the number one item on his to do list.
3: Shanali, what are you hearing from your contact, contacts on Wall Street? What what needs to be done?
4: What needs to be done? Well, they have
5: two activist investors here that has a lot of suggestions on what they want to do, and they might take more of a stake, according to Wall Street Journal's reporting, Tryon in particular. They might want to expand their stake as well as seek a board seat. Tryon but,
3: has w- how much? I heard they bought an $800 million worth of stock,
5: less but than this is a
3: $180 billion dollar company. Yes. so.
5: And you were asking, I just did some quick back of the envelope math. When you look at today's stock price, uh, Bob Iger himself has about 90 million worth of shares. So, and again, that has declined significantly this year. So, and he might own more than that besides what's publicly disclosed. So, what will now Third Point also want? They also have a small stake as well. Remember, these are not stakes that are big enough to immediately cause a lot of change, especially in key assets like ESPN, that initially there was some change wanted in terms of monetizing more of what we've already seen. But remember, Bob Iger, to your point on the Wall Street perspective, this is one of the most beloved CEOs across Wall Street. This is somebody that bankers, investors fall over themselves for. But again, according to the Wall Street Journal Report, Tryon in particular doesn't necessarily want him there in this capacity.
2: Hey, Geetha, you know, uh, Shanali just brought up ESPN. Boy, there was a time, and you and I remember, not so long ago when this was the profit driver for the entire company. Now with cord cutting, not so much. What do you think Bob Iger and the board are thinking about ESPN?
4: I mean, this is a real head scratcher, Paul. Uh, you know, this is yes, it is the profit driver. It continues to be a huge profit driver, though. I mean, it still is generating about 4.3 billion dollars in EBITDA every year. The problem, though, is that the revenue is shrinking rapidly as you have more and more cord cutting, and and Bob Iger himself just recently said that you know cord cutting has reached unprecedented levels, and you know there might just be a a point in time that comes very soon when you know the switch finally goes off. But at the same time, they have. So they have the shrinking revenue base. They have subscribers going away, but they have sports rights. Disney, by far, pays the highest sports rights in the media ecosystem at nine billion dollars every year. They have an NBA wow. deal that's coming up. Uh, you know there are all of these different sports rights that um, that are coming up for renewal, where we've seen like huge, huge increases in rights fees. You know, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty percent. So it's going to be interesting to see exactly what Bob Iger looks to do. Does he make that shift finally? That that big jump into streaming, kind of pivoting away from the TV ecosystem. But then again, it's gonna be a tough balancing act because as I said, you know the, 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 the suite of networks but, does bring in more than $4 billion.
3: But what, is, what do you mean? I mean, uh, ESPN, they already have ESPN Plus, right? But yes. I still, if I stream, if I subscribe to ESPN Plus, which I do, I still can't see all the games
4: that's that are exactly, on ESPN. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So ESPN Plus is kind of this watered down version with like more like second tier sports content. All of the marquee properties are on you know the main TV networks, right? Whether it's uh, you know the NFL, the NBA, uh, really all top tier uh, properties. And so the question is, you know, do they kind of le- kind of finally take that step and move everything to? You know, ESPN Plus, and then obviously bump up the price pretty significantly as well. Please, please, dear God, do that. (laughs) There are other things that Wall
5: Street has wanted from this company. You know, I'm looking at Third Point's initial letter, and they wanted the company to use free cash flow to pay down debt more meaningfully, repurchase shares, and suspend a cash dividend. And as far as streaming goes, they really want them to work faster and harder to integrate Hulu into the Disney Plus platform. So it's not just ESPN streaming, it's Hulu also. Which has been, you know, a long prized asset that, of course, Comcast had that stake in as well. And uh, I think there there are a lot of things here that Wall Street wants them to do, and we did not see them happening too quickly. Though we did see some movement towards these things under J.P.
3: I will say that if you uh, on the Disney screen, D.I.S. equity. Yep. Go. If you type D-D-I-S-GO, you can see how much debt they have uh, coming due, about $45 billion over the next um, 30 years. So that could be reshaped. If you pull up a comp screen, C-O-M-P-GO. Oh boy. this is what we like to do. And look at Disney versus Netflix and Amazon. They have drastically underperformed the others. Amazon, you can tell me, Geetha, okay, they have this big cloud business. I get it. Or you can order stuff from them online. I've done it. Netflix, what do they have Over Disney, do they just have better content?
4: I wouldn't say it's better content. I would say Disney arguably has the best content in the media business. But Netflix now is a pure play story, right? And and investors like that. Wall Street likes that. They like pure play businesses where it's an uncomplicated, clean story. With Disney, you do have a lot of exposure to the linear TV business. And we know the linear TV business is in secular decline. And those headwinds are only mounting. Uh, So that's something that investors really don't like.
3: All right,
2: Geetha, great stuff. As always, our go-to person for all things media, Geetha Rang and and She is the senior media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and Shanali Bassa giving us the Wall Street angle. Why? Because she is our Wall Street ace here at Bloomberg News, bringing it all together here, tabling it.
6: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at steeple.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
7: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
0: You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: I'm still on Twitter, but I don't know. I could dump it tomorrow. and I'd be just fine. I'm off Facebook.
3: I feel like a lot of people... I thought that a lot of people would bail on Twitter for you know ethical reasons. Because at least the people around me that I follow or who follow me, I feel like... Are pretty left leaning, yep, um, and not libertarian in the sense that Elon Musk is, and a lot of them seem very angry, you know, hurt Elon. about the takeover from Elon. But at the same time, um, they're just addicted. That's I right. love the the meme that Elon Musk posted today or yesterday um, with Lois from Family Guy, who by the way is one of my all time favorite cartoon characters. (laughs) And she's looking at this bottle of prescription medication and clearly shaking (laughs) because she wants to grab a pill of Twitter, you know? And the idea is that's what Donald Trump is doing.
2: Mandeep Singh, he covers all things tech and that means for better or worse, he covers Twitter and all that kind of stuff in the social media platforms. What do you think is going on there with Twitter? I mean, is this a viable business? Can he support the debt? Is this thing going to get ugly? I mean, there were
8: rumors a couple of days ago that this thing would go dark. Well, so clearly with, uh, you know, him having laid off about 70 to 80 percent of the staff and we don't know whether the infrastructure, you know, and the back end people who've really make sure that the app and website are up and running are still there. Like, look, when you do mass firings like this, the real risk is you don't know who is critical to your development velocity. And if he has figured that out, great for him. And, you know, things will be fine. It seems like not
3: very many people is the answer to that question. I mean, if you say he fired 70 to 80% of the staff yeah, and it's working fine. So for now, yeah, but, I mean, it's been days and days and days with millions and millions of users.
2: See, this is the thing, what I've learned from the smart people like Mandeep and others, in tech, you have to iterate every day. I mean, how many times you go on to LinkedIn and you're like, oh, that's new. And you have to have that every single day. And I, I'm guessing, okay, maybe they were overstaffed 5%, 10%, 20%, but 50%? So yeah. you have to assume they cut some muscle quickly, with uh, so As an
3: aside, answer that question, especially for listeners who may be trying to connect to me on LinkedIn. How many times do I go on LinkedIn? Once every three or four months. <laughs> <laughs> but Twitter? Twitter, once every, well, maybe three or four times a day. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There you go.
8: Well, so look, I, I think in terms of the usage, no one questions that, you know, Twitter is a unique platform and I think the competition risk is low. So even if, you know, there are all these things going on and he has brought back uh, former President Trump, and some people are happy, some are not. But at the end of the day, the platform is addictive and there isn't an alternative. The key question is, is it a good model in terms of what he's trying to do with subscriptions, blue checks, and all the changes that he wants to do with a company that is 80% smaller than it was in terms of headcount. So how do you drive all these product changes when you get rid of so many people? Maybe he has a pulse on who the right talent is to uh, you know make these changes, but I don't think so. And, like, If you're cost-cutting, then your focus should be cost-cutting. If you want to expedite product development velocity, then that should be your focus. You can't do both simultaneously.
3: You know, it's funny, as you say that, I'm thinking about Disney. Because I was reading in the story last night and, and uh, early this morning, what they need to do is cut costs for the streaming business and also boost subscribers for the streaming business. So, and maybe even the price, right? So they want to pay less for the product that they're selling and charge more for it.
8: Is that possible? Well, look, it, anything is possible. I don't, know if, I don't know if
3: Disney's in your wheelhouse, but no. you can't have woken up without you know getting into this story right
8: yeah but look at the end of the day for one thing you have to make sure is you have the right people in charge for the most time we kept hearing like elon isn't going to run twitter now it looks like he's the one who is doing it he's not bringing anyone externally He does so, run twitter so i i think to me there are a lot of question marks around the vision if you have the vision if you lay out the vision and you're executing towards it i think you get everyone on board in this case I don't know if there is a vision and every day it's something new. Yes, you can, you know, talk about stuff, but to execute on it, you really need to, you know, have a vision. And I think that's what's missing here.
2: You know, I'm looking at the Bloomberg terminal, the FA, and the most recent EBITDA estimates for Twitter, before it was taken public, uh, private, a billion dollars, a billion two. And there's like 13 billion of debt on there, if not more. That's a lot of leverage, 13 times, I mean, that's even before we had some of these advertisers pulling back that's the the
8: exactly so uh, from my perspective they're they're already down almost 15 20 percent in terms of the advertising revenue because a lot of advertisers have pulled out and the reason is brand safety because they have gotten rid of all the, you know, people moderating yep. content, brand safety is a big issue. So I wouldn't be surprised in the near term, they lose more advertising revenue and they can offset a little bit of it using the lower cost because they have fired 70 to 80% of the staff. Yep. But net net, you're not going to make a big jump in EBITDA growth because- right. uh, This is going to
2: be tough. And remember those fixed income people want their money back. It's strange. All right, let's talk about the streaming business. As it turns out, it's easier to get subscribers. It's a little bit harder to make money off of those subscribers. And for the Walt Disney Company, it was such a big deal that they made a big change at the top, bringing back Bob Iger to be CEO for a couple of years. I'm going to talk to Mark Douglas. He's smart on all this stuff. He's president and CEO of Mountain. Mountain is an advertising software company enabling brands to drive measurable conversions, revenue, and site visits. Hey, Mark, it it turns out, I guess, that, again, a lot of these streaming companies are realizing it's hard to make money. Maybe we need to think about advertising. What did you make of the news at Disney today?
9: Well, I mean, it was, I think, a shock to everyone. I've talked to folks at Disney as recently as the middle of last week. And if they had any idea this was about to happen, they did a very good job of hiding that. So I think it was definitely shocking news. Um, but, you know, these are um, challenging times in the television industry, mainly because there's a lot of innovation, and a lot of change. And so if you have a track record of managing large companies but haven't had a track record and, and I'm not saying of, you know, essentially innovating while doing that, you're that's probably going to be a real challenge for you. I I don't know if that was the case. Um, with the person Bob is replacing, but I think Bob Iger definitely has that track record, and and that's why Disney needs him.
3: Well, you, I mean, you need to, as the CEO of a company that's worth, when Bob Iger was running it, you know, $200 billion, not only innovate and make money on the products that you're um, developing, but also somehow take care of succession, right? You can't just leave with nobody good in charge or at least two people good in charge. So the idea is that Bob Iger leaves, Chapek is a successor, Chapek's not good enough, and now they have zero bench? There's no one else to choose from? They have to call Bob Iger back? Isn't that crazy?
9: Well, I mean, that's one way of looking at it, but I think also... Um, look, a lot of you—you you have a lot of things have changed since Bob left. You have Netflix entering the market, Disney them in terms of ad-supported streaming. Disney themselves announced with Disney Plus they're going to be doing the same. You have Apple actually a lot of rumors about Apple um, about to do the same. Um, just you know, the world has changed in terms of the economic conditions, and so you know it's it's when you have someone who has this fifteen year track record knows the business. Sometimes you know you go back to the bench, so to say, and that's what they did here. I, I get your point completely, but I also don't think it was a it's a bad choice to say look let's let's go with let let's redo this let's do this one more time two years line it up for the future and then you know hopefully be in a much stronger place at the end of that
3: mark what if you left mountain what if you found something else maybe you want to dedicate the rest of your life to charity so you give it to ryan ryan reynolds takes over he makes it maybe a year and a half too he's no good he can't do the business it's just a pretty face who reads a script do you got a plan b for that is someone else going to take over oh <laughs> i
2: the
9: I, please don't, don't pass ryan...
2: along that this Des- Des- description.
9: <laughs> I don't think Ryan has a pretty face reading a script, but <laughs> and but I'll make sure he knows that you said that. How about, uh, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But you know, look at the case of Salesforce. Totally different company, a totally different industry. I don't think people most people know that um Mark Benioff left, you know, did that. He left The company that he had built and went off and did something else and wound up and left some very capable people in charge, but he wound up coming back. And that's what we're talking about here. That DNA to build and to see the opportunities and to be willing to take the risk, that is very, very hard to find. And when you have it... Formerly as your CEO and now as a, as you know someone that was on your board and that person's willing to come back at a critical moment, I think it's always going to be the right choice, and it was the right choice for Salesforce. It's probably going to be the right choice for Disney, and 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 those are not the only two examples of that happening.
2: Yeah, well, I've, Mark, I've covered this stock for 30 years, and, and my take today, as I read this, was this is not a victory lap for Bob Iger. It's an admission that his succession plan was a complete failure. He had a that's great, what I just
3: said. He had a
2: great one at one point with uh, Jay Rasulo and Tom Staggs, uh, but he blew that up as well. So here we are. Um, he only has two years. I think one of his top jobs, in addition to fixing the streaming, is to find a successor. I mean, I wonder if they're going to go
9: external, internal. Any thoughts you're hearing? The, well, I think, it, I think that's not his first priority. I mean, this was announced yesterday. Today is his literally his his first day back. I think the first priority is vision. Where do they wanna be? Um, There's a lot of people who left Disney in very senior roles who um, I wouldn't be surprised if they came back also, um, who left over the last year or so. So I think it's first, what's the vision? Let's make sure we have the right team to execute on that vision. And I do think that if you're Bob, you you are looking at the situation and saying, look, we wanna make sure that 24 months from now, um, when we do this again, that we have what's you know really the, the company's in the right place and the team is in the right place and and, mm-hmm. and learn from that. And that, I think that's what's going to happen. But you have to I'll just keep reiterating you you can't lead a company. Leaders have vision. Leaders have are fearless and and you know and they know where they want to go. And that's that's task number one. And and what about Mark? The what about task you know? Two.
3: I feel like there's so much they've left on the table. In terms of the streaming business, right? I have Disney and I have Hulu and I have ESPN, Plus, and I still can't watch the games that I want to watch. I'm not going to go back to cable um, like a lot of people. I just want everything in one place as well. Is that, am I the only one who wants it that way? Are they smart to have, you know, 10 different apps for their content or do they need to make a change there?
9: Well, they—I mean—they have a really good lineup of assets here. Hulu gives them live con, excuse me, gives them live content as well as original content. They have Disney, have ABC, they have ESPN, they have D- D- Disney Plus, they have Star. I mean, literally, I was watching the latest Star Wars last night. So, I mean, they have an incredible bench of content. The other thing I don't think most people think about when it comes to TV in general—it's under monetized. There are more people watch television than use so. It has three times the engagement, three hours a day watching TV for the average individual, an hour a day on social media, but somehow makes less money. So this this is a business that is primed for you know to, to really expand the monetization, move beyond just upfronts for monetization, really move to capturing more revenue with those with that triple that engagement. And so I think you're going to see a lot of consolidation in the content business. I think companies like Disney are going to figure out how to monetize it much more effectively. Bob is on record talking about that in the past. And once you monetize it more effectively, then you're going to look to buy more content, more TV networks. So this is going to be an exciting two years. I think this is kicking off a wave... Of, of a right. lot of changes in the business model and consolidation in terms of the TV networks. All
2: right, Mark, great stuff. You want to talk about an under uh, audience, I'll give you over the air radio. Mark Douglas, president and CEO of Mountain, joining us on this Disney News.
6: Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you.
0: Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: I want to get right to our next guest, Michael Nathanson, founding partner and senior research analyst at Moffitt Nathanson. And folks, uh, he is just one of the top voices on Wall Street uh, covering the media industry. He knows all the players. I want to get his thoughts here on the Disney News Mike thanks so much for joining us here when you saw the news what do you think here what do you thinks going on at the house of Mickey
10: well first I thought it was a joke Paul um, <laughs> I, th- I thought someone who was playing a joke on me yep um, after realizing it was real I don't know if you could hear me This lines line well, me breaking out but it no, but it's great after I re- okay after I realized it was real I um, It made sense to me. We have, as you know, been a doubter about streaming economics. We thought that that Disney strategy relative to streaming had changed a lot. (laughs) They had gone broader and moved away from kind of their tent poles. And it made sense to me because we had not recommended Disney. We think the losses in streaming are way too large. We thought the company was too optimistic about their businesses ahead. I think Bob brings a real clear-eyed view of what they have to do to kind of fix their company
3: isn't there anyone else in the 190,000 employees at Walt Disney (laughs) I mean this guy is uh you know 71 he's retired for a couple years now and he picked his own successor um don't they have like at 200 billion dollar companies plans like with a third string guy and a fourth string guy
10: yes to be fair the bench that was in place when Bob made the decision had been hurt by succession planning that went awry. Do you remember they had picked Tom Staggs to be the COO and he left and they had a bake off for that job with Jay Rizzullo. So they had a really strong bench that they were building towards succession planning. And that bench became weaker uh, as part of the, the planning. I don't think there's anyone, who has the, to uh, what Bob brings, is Bob brings a level of success and is able to look look things honestly and share bad news. And I think when you're a new CEO, it's really hard to communicate bad news. He can share bad news with us. The bad news being cord cutting is running amok. Uh, streaming will not be profitable. Uh, the company needs to generate more cash flow. And I think, I think, you know, it, it takes someone with that type of success and experience to be able to deliver bad news. And then, Radically make changes if streaming isn't profitable
3: Michael what right why do we want to own this stock is it because they have an awesome cruise line business is it because every family in the country has to take um, their kids to the parks at least once (laughs) Um, but I mean what else do they have if it's ESPN I guess is fantastic but you've got to have cable and who wants to have cable anymore
10: right so so, let, so let's, let's look at, there's three pieces to the puzzle. There's the park business, which is a great business that um, generates you know, a ton of free cash flow, flows, managed really well. That business is exceptionally good. There's a linear network business that we know is heading in the wrong direction. Uh, it's gotta be managed for free cash flow. It has not been managed that way as of late. That business is not the reason why we're excited about Disney, that's gonna be managed. It's the streaming business, we don't think playing a broad general entertainment streaming strategy the way Netflix is doing it, Amazon Prime is doing it, is good for the Walt Disney Company, right? Walt Disney has these strong brands, strong temples, family-based content. They should basically have less subscribers that pay a higher price, right? So when I look at the stock, what's embedded in the stock as of yesterday morning or last night was, you know, three and a half billion dollars of losses in streaming, right? It doesn't make any sense when you don't need to spend all that money on extraneous content when you have the the temples that they have. So the path they went down about two years ago was to challenge Netflix in terms of the long-term potential of the business to be a a global, you know, massive player and have subs as high as the sky they could still have a great business with, with not having the same, you know, right. focus to just be all things to all people, right? That's, the appeal is at this price, what are you paying, not paying very much at all for streaming, if it becomes profitable or even break even to where it is today, right? right. I felt that the previous regime was not going to make that happen because yep. they were wedded to a strategy that was
2: flawed. And just folks that that are listening, there are 33 analysts uh, that cover the Walt Disney Company, 28 have buys, only five have hold ratings. Uh, Michael Nathanson was one of those uh, hold ratings, so we got that right. Hey, Michael, I think, you know, if I'm the board of directors, one of the things I say is, hey, turn around this company, fix streaming, but also deliver to us, you know, as soon as possible, a succession plan and try to get it right this time. You know, bring back stags, Bring back Rosullo. The street will take either of those. I think. How do you think the succession will work in two years? Yeah, good question. Good question. By the way, we were hold until this morning when we upgraded
10: this. Oh, good stuff. Right? So, good stuff. Yeah, so we were hold. Yeah, it wasn't fun being against Walt Disney Company. But <laughs> to your point, I think the mistake was Bob Chapek was not a creative person. He worked in the parks his whole career. You could say that Iger wasn't creative, but you know Iger was the head of programming at ABC. He worked at ABC sports. He then became very close to um, the content creators at Disney and, and helped help there. So I think you need someone from the other side of the house. You don't need a park exec. You need someone from the content side. And I would spend my time. I was Bob identifying two or three people who are the content creators to, to, to be my successors. You know, it can't be someone from the park side.
2: All right, Michael Nathanson, good stuff. Really appreciate it. Uh, big news, uh, big news. Also, um, Moffat Nathanson upgrading the stock here today from a hold to a buy, so uh, good stuff there. Uh, Michael Nathanson, founding partner and senior research analyst at Moffitt Nathanson here. And the stock is is higher here. I think, you know, investors are, are looking for Bob Iyer at the bare minimum to just kind of steady the ship and maybe give some direction and give some uh, confidence. Uh, and it's maybe some kind of a little bit of a turnaround. And it's not like he has to turn on the entire company. But there are definitely some big
3: fixes. Let's get now to my co-host on the television show, Bloomberg ETF IQ. Katie Greifeld joins us in the Interactor Broker Studio. We broadcast at 1 p.m., mm-hmm. so let's make this quick. Yeah. Uh, what are we talking about on the show today?
11: On the show today, we're going to talk about ETFs. We're going to talk a little bit, though, about <laughs> the Grayscale you. Bitcoin Trust, which is not an ETF. As you know, I'm obsessed with it. Uh, this thing, it closed Friday at a 45% discount to its underlying holdings. This is a $10 billion trust. Why
3: is that, by the way? a? I know I ask uh, people this every couple of days, but why such a huge discount? Do investors just not believe that Grayscale has all of the Bitcoin it should, or...
11: Let me tell you about it. So it's been trading at a discount for uh, going on a year now. So that's just because of the way this trust is set up. So long
3: before FTX. Right. Way back when we thought Sam Bankman-Fried was a super genius who was going to fix the world.
11: Yes, back when we were um, young and different people. But it has, so this discount, it's been around for a while. It's widened dramatically in the past couple of weeks. And I mean, I've been asking around why. Because basically what that means is that people are offloading shares of GBTC Quicker than they're selling Bitcoin. Uh, I was just having that conversation with James Safert of Bloomberg Intelligence. His take is that people just want to get away from anything that could have any hint of contagion risk right now, even if it's only a remote possibility. So if you think of it from that lens, it kind of makes sense because you think about Grayscale's parent. Well, that would be a buying through?
3: opportunity, right? Assuming you don't if think Bitcoin's going to drop more than.
11: No, but what James is saying is that if you think about Grayscale's parent digital currency group, they also own Genesis. That's a Barry Silbert company. Yes, that's the Barry Silbert empire. Uh, The empire is a little bit shaky right now relative to how it appeared to be two weeks ago. So there's just a lot of fear in this industry right now. There's been cascading blowups. No one knows where to look next. And even though by you know, everything that we know, Grayscale is absolutely fine. There's just a lot of fear.
2: In the marketplace, generally defined, do people feel like this is a defining moment for crypto, a bump in the road, part of just the growing process for Mm -hmm. new asset class? Where are we taking? Because it feels a little panicky.
11: It's absolutely a life-altering event. It's absolutely an existential moment. But if you look past... I don't know, the past couple of years, I really, all of Bitcoin's existence, 80% drawdowns are not unusual. If you think back to past blowups, Mt. Gox, for example, that was the exchange a couple of mm-hmm. years ago. That exchange blew up spectacularly. It was hacked. It was a huge scandal and still-
3: And what did Mt. Gox stand for?
11: I was hoping you would tell me.
3: <laughs> so Mt. Gox was the first really big and popular crypto exchange it was uh, founded as an exchange for playing cards in a Dungeons and Dragons type of game. It was called Magic the Gathering Online Exchange, That's hence adorable. Mount Gox.
11: I never played Magic wow. the Gathering.
3: <laughs> Neither did I. Really? Okay.
11: I have two brothers
2: you who were did Dungeons and Dragons, guy, I bet. I
3: was, you know what? I was mildly into it in like 3rd or 4th grade before I had any inkling as to how it worked. I <laughs> Just because it... Of it. I also loved Death Leopard Pyromania at the time. It was my favorite record. Sure. So, you know, you... people change. I Although I still say, love that record. I thought
11: you were like a motorcycle guy, which seems unintuitive to also say that you were I'm Avengers telling you, this is a long time ago, oh, you're Katie.
3: This is before I developed, you know, mm-hmm, for <laughs> sure. Before I turned into a man,
8: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> wearing a Very red cool. flannel. Shirt. In any, in any
3: case, um, you know, so so Mount Gox was the first one to fantastically um, implode, and we've since had a number of events, a lot this year. It seems like more than ever this year, but maybe that's because of the size. One of the open questions is what happened to this like half a billion dollars worth of coins on the FTX exchange. I think the debate right now is, was there a hack? SBF Mm. said in his famous, you know, off the record conversation with his friend as a reporter for Vox, it was a hack, but maybe it was the Bahamian authorities, um, you know, Asking him to get it so that the U.S. authorities couldn't—it's like I think one of the most fun and mysterious issues of the whole.
11: Oh, absolutely. Saga. I mean, this is an existential moment, but as a journalist, uh, it's just an embarrassment of riches. There's so many different <laughs> threads to pull on here, uh, and I mean, just the players involved, the characters. Can we talk involved. about
3: Elizabeth Holmes? Just got 11 wow. years in prison. Yes. Right? Wasn't that on Friday? Yes. I think. And what, I wonder what kind of prison did she? Um, <laughs> dupe more people? Was she the source of more financial ruin than Sam Bankman-Fried? I
11: was actually hoping you would speculate on that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to speculate.
3: The, I, the question is, where do you rank these people in terms of how much damage well, they've done?
11: FTX, more than a million creditors. That's just a staggering number. I mean, I'm sure of them only had $100 or so on FTX. Well, but the top
3: 50 had at least $21 million apiece. The top two had more than billion. $200 million yeah. each. And it's like... Bernie Madoff, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, Sam Bankman Fried. Are all these people playing in the same league? Do I, think? Think. I don't Under know. Under investigation. It's, well, if there isn't even, I don't even know if there's fraud here, right? I mean, do we know yet?
2: Do, Under I don't investigation. know. I don't know. I yeah, don't, I don't know, know. And I would not make that kind of accusation. Yeah, no idea. All right, Katie Greifeld, uh, we have some uh, crypto stuff. So that was good. We appreciate that. Wes Kosova, he is the host of Bloomberg Big Take Podcast. Wes, what do you have for us here?
7: Uh, thanks for having me on. Again, yes, yeah, this morning we have a really interesting show that's based on a story that Sheridan Prasso wrote about Shein, which is the world's largest online retailer of clothes. It's a Chinese company. They sell a ton of fast fashion. These are clothes that are really cheap. They're kind of on trend. You buy them without having to think too much because they cost so little. You wear them for a while and really they're kind of meant to be disposable. Uh, which is why they keep people coming back for more and more, but it then causes all kinds of problems.
3: Yeah, I mean, fast fashion, it's a notoriously awful product. I mean, for the environment, it's bad. For humanity, it's bad. Movies have been made about the disastrous impact, and consumers continue to go back for more.
7: Yeah, and it's because... You know, you can just buy and buy these things, and especially, um, you know, younger people who kind of want to be trendy and don't have a lot of money to spend. It becomes kind of like a fun thing to do. And
3: And, don't care, apparently, about the people who are employed in making this clothing, right?
7: Yes, and that, of course, is the the subject of the story and our podcast. So Shein... makes uh, a a lot of its clothes from cotton that comes from the Xinjiang region, which is this Northwestern region of China that we've heard a lot about in the news because the U.S. and other countries have accused the Chinese government of imposing this campaign of forced labor on the Uyghur Muslim people there, putting them in internment camps. And as part of that, uh, forcing them to work in different industries, including harvesting of cotton. And so, what this story is all about is that Sheridan Presso, so the reporter, went to try to find out where does the cotton in clothing from Shein come from. And she she went and she actually tested uh, garments that came from there and found out that yes, indeed, it does come from that region.
2: And what are, what are some of the Western retailers that 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 may be involved in the process? What do, what do they say? What's kind of the, the the feedback you're getting from the industry.
7: Well, what's interesting about this is, uh, Sherry reports, is that because Shein is entirely online, they don't have really any retail operations. You know, oh, you go okay. into yep. H&M, you go into Zara, Gap, you know, all these clothing retailers. And if you look at the labels on those clothes, a lot of them uh, come from Thailand now, they come from Malaysia, they come from Vietnam, other places, uh, in part because, uh, Uh, you know, manufacturing is easier, even cheaper than it is in China, but also because they can avoid the problems of sourcing cotton that then becomes problematic because of the Xinjiang region and everything that's involved in the politics of not sourcing materials from there.
3: Isn't it dangerous to even be reporting in that part of the world? Um, Well, I don't know that there's
7: a a danger, per se, in, in this a story. She had bought uh, garments that came uh, from Shein, and she sent them out to a lab to have them tested. Uh, and then they used this very interesting process, which if you listen to the podcast, you can hear Sherry explain. She is uh, one of the guests on the show today. Um, at where they tested, and they are able to determine, not only did this cotton come from Xinjiang, um, uh, but exactly where. Like They know because of the way they tested that It didn't just come from China. It didn't just come from a particular region. It came exactly from there. That's how sophisticated the testing is now. Boy,
2: you know, before this story, Wes, I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of this company. Never heard of it before, but it's a big company. Uh, You got some reporting in there, uh, backed by investors, including Sequoia Capital and IDG Capital. She conducted a funding round this year that put its value at $100 billion. So this is a big company. Do we have any response
7: from the company? Uh yes, and you're right. It is huge. And it's funny because I hadn't really heard about it either. But you know, I talked to my daughters, they sure have heard about it. And you <laughs> talk to, you know, young people, they know all about this company, and so it just goes to show you. Like you go on TikTok, and there are people who, who um like put out on TikTok all of their Shein halls where they show all the clothes that they got. Um, and so this has become kind of like a, a thing. Um, the company says that they uh, may have agreements with supra- suppliers and the suppliers tell them that the clothing is all uh, you know made humanely and that the sourcing of the material is humanely. Now, as Sherry writes, there's an interesting sort of bind that Xi'an finds itself in. Because they're a Chinese com- con- uh, company, if they deny that the clothing came or the cotton came from xinjiang then they could get themselves in trouble with china because china claims that there's absolutely nothing wrong with sourcing it and they say that there is no forced labor uh, and then yeah of course if they say that the, it does come from there then they get in trouble with western governments. so they're kind of in between but their response is There is no forced labor used in Xinjiang. That is the Chinese government's uh, uh, position. And their suppliers certify that the clothing is made uh,
3: correctly. So, But, I mean, um, Xinjiang is Chinese. Xi'an is Chinese. TikTok is Chinese. I'm guessing your kids aren't. But are the customers uh, for Xi'an mostly Chinese um, consumers? Uh, 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 Xi'an
7: sells clothes all over the world, in Europe, in the United States, everywhere, uh, and so they are a truly a global retailer. So many, many of the customers. Are I mean, Alibaba
3: is a global retailer too, but most of their buyers are in Asia, right? It's not like you and I are going to say, "Hey, I need a vacuum cleaner," and go online and get it at Alibaba. That's just not as likely as someone in in Asia buying it.
7: That's right. Although um, for this clothing, because it's cheap. And it's easy to ship, you know. It just comes in a little envelope like anything else. Uh, then it's it shipped all over the world. And because the uh, these things don't meet the threshold for value that the U.S. Customs Enforcement Agency would right. like take a look at these things, uh, they just come in the mail. And you know, we're talking millions yep. and millions of packages. So there's no way that the U.S. can right. track every envelope that comes in.
2: All right, Wes. Great stuff. As always, Wes Kosova, host of Bloomberg's Big Take podcast. You can listen to the Big Take podcast on iHeartRadio app, Apple, and anywhere else you get your podcast, and listen to the Big Take every night at 11 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio.
3: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer.